Hello and welcome to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today we're discussing the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans. This epic adventure film stars Daniel Day-Lewis and was adapted from an 1826 novel by James Fenimore Cooper. The film is set during the Seven Years' War, which is still sometimes known in the United States as the French and Indian War. The story centers on Hawkeye, the adopted son of a Mohican chief, who seeks to protect two daughters of a British military officer from a Wendat warrior who wants them killed. Both the film and the novel on which it's based have been very popular across the world. Today we dig into the history behind The Last of the Mohicans, discussing how it depicts indigenous people, relations between various indigenous nations and European empires, and the Seven Years' War in North America. To discuss this with me, I'm joined by Jonathan Bayer. Jonathan is a PhD candidate in history at Western University who studies 18th and early 19th century North America. His research focuses specifically on American media portrayals of Canadians during this period. Before we get to our conversation today, I have a couple of comments to add at the top of the episode here. The first is that, contrary to the title of the film, the Mohican Nation still exists. In our interview, we talk about the myth, which is sometimes referred to as the myth of the vanishing race, a belief which this title and the story references. But I should add from the get-go here that the title is quite wrong. The Mohican Nation is still around. My second comment is about the name Huron. The characters in the film refer to the Huron people, and so I use the term Huron during our interview, but I should add here that Huron is not actually the name that this group calls itself. Rather, it was a name designated by the French. It's not generally preferred to refer to the group as the Wendat, or in some parts of the United States, the Wyandot. All right, now with those comments, let's get into the interview. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Bayer. Jonathan, a PhD candidate at Western University in London, Ontario. Thanks so much for making the time to join me today. Oh, no worries. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you. It's a little funny that I TA'd for you during the pandemic, a Zoom-based US history course where we talked about a lot of the themes we'll be talking about today. But And so we're conducting this over the internet as well. It's funny... I feel like I've talked to you a fair bit, but I've never actually met you in person. <laughs> yeah, same, yeah. same feeling here. <laughs> yeah. Could you please introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about what your research is all about? Sure. So I am Jonathan Baer, currently a grad student in history at the University of Western Ontario and a sessional lecturer at Huron University College and Brescia University College. And I'm currently researching American newspaper portrayals of Canadians from between the French and Indian War and the War of 1812. Essentially, I'm arguing that the American press used portrayals of Canadians uh, sort of as a foil against which to define American identity. American identity was sort of developing, uh, particularly after independence, this new sort of unique American identity. And I'm arguing that newspapers, American newspapers, sort of used, used Canadians as a foil against which to say this is what an American is. Canadians are like this. Americans are like this. So Canadians are violent. Americans are peaceable. Canadians are ignorant. Americans are learned. That sort of thing is what I'm looking at. <laughs> right. That's really interesting. I think that that kind of makes a lot of sense historically in the sense that you sort of have a new, a new nation and they're trying to define what the characteristics of the nation are. So you take this group of people just to the north of you that have a mostly pretty similar history. Other, I mean, French Canada is, is more distinct, I suppose, than than English-speaking United States, but but in, in some ways related history, and so use that as a foil. That makes sense. That's cool. That's a cool project. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did you become interested in this 
sort of period and place in history, late 18th, early 19th century North America? Looking back, I, I always did love this era of history in, in the history courses that I'd take in elementary school and, and high school and whatnot. This was, I guess, sort of what I was drawn to. I also have this memory of being kind of offended that Canadians of the era were always portrayed as losing. We were always losing to the <laughs> Americans. Just, you know, lost the American Revolution, lost the, as far as at least the documentaries were saying, lost the War of 1812. I think that's a pretty <laughs> arguable point there. Mm -hmm. But but I that, so I think that got me into it a little bit, wanting to say Canadians won every now and again. Canadians were, you know, we, we didn't lose constantly throughout that time. <laughs> and then I, I also, more recently, I found the air is kind of like a Goldilocks zone for me. It's it's just right. There's just enough source material, but there's stuff there. It's interesting. You, you can find kind of source material for whatever you're looking at. Uh, but at the same time, it's not a huge amount of stuff. It's not an overwhelming amount of sources and material and whatnot. So I find it, it's kind of exactly what I'm looking for in terms of something to study. Right. Cool. So today we're talking about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, as well as the novel it's based on, which is by James Fenimore Cooper and published originally in 1826. So I think some of the themes that you've mentioned already will come up in our discussion a little bit. Let's give a brief summary of the plot of the film for people who haven't seen it or maybe haven't seen it in a while. I'll do my best with this. It's kind of a complicated plot. It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the movie starts out, the, the, the protagonist of the movie is named Hawkeye, and he is the adopted son of Chingach Gook, who is a chief of the Mohicans and one of the the last of the Mohican people who are an indigenous people in sort of roughly around where like modern day New York state, which is where the movie is set. So the, the movie revolves around this, this father, adopted son and, and a brother as well. So there, there's sort of th a group of three of them. And the movie is set against the backdrop of the seven years war, or often known in the United States as the French and Indian war. And there's sort of like a general's daughter, general's two daughters who are being transported to the fort where their father is by a battalion of British troops. And they get attacked by a group of Huron warriors. And they're sort of betrayed by a guide that they believed was Mohawk, but is actually Huron named Magua, who essentially ends up serving for the rest of the movie as the villain. And these daughters are in danger, but eventually they get rescued by Hawkeye and his father and brother. They end up helping these daughters get to the fort. And so they end up in the fort and the fort is being besieged by the French. There's sort of a, a, lots of battle scenes happening in the movie. And we'll get into this one a little bit later. I don't want to include it in the plot summary because it sort of, it sort of complicates the, the summary. But there's this plot line about colonial troops not being treated very well by the British. Anyway, the battle rages. Eventually the fort surrenders. And the French commander, Montcalm, he sort of makes this tacit deal with Magua, who we learn is motivated out of revenge against the, the British commander. He makes this tacit deal where he says, like, well, now that they've surrendered, it would be dishonorable for me to attack them. But he kind of says, like, I won't do anything about it if, if you attack them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so Magua and these Huron warriors attack the British as they're marching out of the fort. And a lot of the rest of the movie is 
essentially Magua trying to kill the general and his daughters and Hawkeye and his family trying to rescue them. And he's semi-successful in that, in that, like, the woman who he has a romantic relationship with is rescued, but the other daughter dies, as does Hawkeye's brother, ends up being killed in battle. And Magua is, is eventually killed as well. So at the end of the movie, Chingachgook gives this sort of speech about being the last of the Mohicans. That's kind of the gist. I don't know if that made a lot of sense. It's kind of hard to follow. So obviously this is based on a novel from over 150 years before the movie was released. This is a, a very popular story in American history. There have been many different versions of the movie made, and the, the novel has sold many, many, many copies oh, yeah. <laughs> throughout its lifetime. What are some of the key ways that the novel differs from the film? There are a few kind of big, big plot point ways that the, that the movie is different. The kind of the biggest one is that there is actually no love story between Hawkeye and Korra, uh, one of the general's daughters there, the one who survives in the movie. Yeah. There is no love interest there. Hawkeye is, uh, in the movie, Hawkeye is called Chingachgook's son, and he calls Uncas Chingachgook's son, actual son, calls him brother. In the book, he calls Chingachgook brother, and he calls Uncas son. So he's kind of portrayed as this older character, sort of Chingachgook's age versus Uncas's age. And in terms of the love stories, it's actually Cora and Uncas who have sort of the love story as well. Uh, Alice, the other daughter, and Duncan Hayward, who's the kind of the British commander who in the film is portrayed as kind of cowardly. He sort of betrays them a couple times. Yeah. Uh, he ends up dead. He, he, him and Alice have a love story in the book and they both survive. They actually both survive the end of that. They kind of go on to live happily ever after. In terms of the ending of the book, then, with these new kind of different couples set up, Korra is the one who's actually taken by Magua, not Alice. The heroes chase after them, as happens in the movie. When they get there, Uncas then attacks Magua. As that's happening, one of Magua's men kills Korra. Seeing that, Uncas then kills the guy who killed Korra. Magua then kills Uncas, and then Hawkeye shoots Magua. It all happens in, like, two pages. It happens really, <laughs> really, really quickly. Oh, wow. So that's kind of the big, the big difference in the plot of the movie. There's also some additions that whole the whole storyline of sort of they have a, a frontier family that's their friends that they find murdered eventually, and then there's a whole scene where Hawkeye helps the colonials get out of the fort because the British refuse to let them leave and go protect their families. Yeah. That's all an addition in the movie. Hmm. As well, there's just like kind of a differences in the way that events happen. The the scene where they're at the waterfall, they're at a waterfall, and then they jump through the waterfall and flee. That actually happens at the beginning of the book, not after the siege as it does in the movie. So there's there's some changes, but the general idea is still there. It's still the same general story. Mohicans and Hawkeye trying to rescue the Monroe sisters, Cora and Alice, and everything that ensues there. Right. It sounds like in this version of the film, they tried to make this more of a an epic romance and so they've made the protagonist a romantic interest obviously sort of younger there's there's a lot of scenes of daniel day lewis shirtless in this movie oh yeah, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so that's it whereas in the original novel this is actually part of a series of books called the leather stocking tales and you know i haven't i haven't read all these books but my sense is that it's he's on the the protagonist hawkeye He's almost more like a like an 18th century Clint Eastwood type of character where he sort of he's he sort of drifts in and out of these stories. He doesn't really have like clear 
I mean, I guess he does have this from these familial relationships with these Mohican characters, but like he sort of doesn't have like clear ties to people. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely say so. And he kind of, James Fenimore Cooper, he, he liked using the character. So he kind of, he, he changed his age in different, he had him in different historical events and he would have been a hundred in this event, but he's back to being, you know, 50 or 30 or whatever. All right. Um, so he does use this character a lot as his main character. Kind of, kind of devoid from some of the other stories in the Leather Stocking series. Right. So, this podcast is all about representations of history for a public audience. And when the novel was released, it was, of course, a representation of history. Right. James Fenimore Cooper was writing this this story about approximately seventy years before his own time. The novel even actually includes a subtitle: "A Narrative of 1757." What does the story show? about the way Americans of the early 19th century would have thought about, you know, sort of mid-18th century North America and the Seven Years' War period. Focusing here a little bit more on sort of the indigenous context, we can talk a little bit later about the British and American sort of context. Mm -hmm. uh, but focusing on sort of the indigenous context in this book, I think it really sort of shows the complexity of American understandings of the indigenous at this time. So James Fenimore Cooper's portrayal of the indigenous is really a very clear justification of settler colonialism, of the colonialism that was being practiced at the time. In a lot of places, in a lot of places, it's, it's really sort of a justification of colonialism. He talks about a number of indigenous groups, uh, and he talks about them by sort of inherent characteristics. They're inherently this, they're inherently that. He talks about groups being inherently dishonest or inherently violent and things like that essentially not living up to what he considered to be what, what Americans at the time considered to be white standards. He's particularly kind of negative towards the Haudenosaunee, what he calls the Iroquois in the, in the book, and the Wyandotte, who he calls the Huron. He's, he's very sort of negative about those two groups. But then he also sort of praises the Lenape, uh, who he calls the Delaware, who the Mohican are a part of. He, he portrays them as sort of noble and wise and reasoned, even more so than many of the white characters, sort of less focused on vice and things like that than some of the white characters. So he has kind of, it shows, I think, this dichotomy that was arising in sort of American understandings of the indigenous at this time, sort of at once portraying indigenous communities, indigenous nations as sort of a primitive thing of the past, a thing that was disappearing, as well as this uh, sort of noble group, this group that wasn't sullied by European vices like greed or violence and things like that. So kind of, again, that's that, that dichotomy image. And when he was writing in the 1820s here, the threat that, that white settlers were feeling from the frontier, from indigenous nations and indigenous groups on the frontier was, was less. It was going down quite a bit by the, by the 1820s. So Americans were a bit less fearful about indigenous nations and began to kind of build curiosity to, to look at them from more of a curious view than a fearful view. And I think that really kind of played into this binary understanding of completely primitive on one side and completely pure, completely reasoned on the other side. Uh, and I think the book really, really makes that sort of clear. I, I believe James Fenimore Cooper was trying in this book to tell Americans, uh, many Americans, that the indigenous weren't that different from them, were sort of could be Americans in his view. But also this justification of colonialism and this idea that it was justified for white society to become dominant, to take control of the land and whatnot. So just that kind of the complexity of the ways that Americans were looking at indigenous nations at the time. Yeah, that's a good point that the movie, I mean, the, well, the book, and I think this comes down as well in the, in the film version, that for a lot of history, there are essentially two dominant white interpretations of indigenous people. They're the sort of 
noble savage interpretation and the I, I don't I don't I'm trying to use like scare quotes around this when I'm saying this, but like, quote unquote, the savages. So uh, sorry. So one of those tends to hold up indigenous people as sort of honorable and, and perhaps in some ways like innocent, un, untouched by the, the vices of European society. And the other portrays them as sort of brutish. Yes. And the film includes both of these portrayals at different times, right? The The Mohican characters have a lot of this sort of noble savage stereotypes associated with those those characters. And, you know, Magua in per- particularly exemplifies a lot of these, the other sorts of stereotypes, the, the quote unquote, like brutish stereotypes. Yep. Oh, exactly. Pure evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting that the book is sort of portraying these as you know some groups are this and some groups are that and in particular obviously the the ones that are allied with the british are the inevitably the the good ones and the ones that are not are the bad ones yep (laughs) the film also uh, and you know the 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 novel and the film in its very title plays into a, a particular myth about indigenous people that was very prevalent in Cooper's time, the idea that indigenous people were disappearing, not only disappearing from the land, but that this process was essentially inevitable. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about this belief and and why it was such a problematic belief? For sure. Um, so the, this idea is kind of, kind of referred to these days as the myth of the dying race, this idea, this myth that indigenous nations, indigenous peoples were sort of, like you said, naturally dying out. This idea that Essentially, indigenous nations were unable to adapt to what were seen at the time as superior European ways, superior European culture, unable to adapt to that. And because of that, they were naturally going to sort of die off and disappear. Uh, It was essentially a justification for the constant and continual taking of land. The the idea that it's it's empty land now, it's it's being emptied as the indigenous nations are disappearing. It It just makes sense for us to take that land. Reservations, reserves were sort of portrayed as palliative care for a race, the spot where indigenous nations essentially went to die. Uh, and then European nations, Europeans justified then occupying what had been indigenous land using the argument that there were really no indigenous left. Very soon there were going to be no indigenous left. So taking the land was just the thing to do. And the belief is obviously problematic for a number of reasons. The main one being that it essentially erases indigenous presence and erases indigenous history and erases indigenous claim to and presence on the land. So that's kind of the big, the big thing. And it's, it's a myth that still holds quite a bit of sway. It held, obviously, tons and tons of sway back in the, in the 1800s, early 1900s. But it's still, still a thing that historians and scholars are sort of pushing back against. It's still kind of in the, in the public milieu a little bit. For sure. I think it, it portrays all of this colonialism as a sort of passive process where it, in fact, it, it, it sort of minimizes the active choices that people are making to ha- make that happen, right? Exactly, exactly. It, like you said there, exactly. It, it allows that justification passively to say, we're not doing this, we're not killing these indigenous nations, but they're naturally disappearing. Exactly. And you get this theme as well in other media portrayals from the same time. I mean, I think of like Dances with Wolves which came out close to The Last of the Mohicans in the 90s, has a lot of this theme as well. One other thing that stood out to me that was, by the way, I thought was interesting. I don't necessarily have a question for you about this, but I I might point this out for the listeners because it stood out to me as interesting. My partner 
studies the history of indigenous activism in the 1960s and 1970s in North America. And we watched the movie together. And after we watched it, we were just like sitting through the credits. And she pointed out to me that a couple of really prominent indigenous activists are actually in this movie as actors. Russell Means and Dennis Banks, who are leaders of AIM in American Indian movement. And I looked this up, you know, especially Russell Means, he, so he plays Ching Achkuk. So he's a, he's a major character in the film. And he's also in Pocahontas as a voice actor as Chief Powhatan. So I just thought that was really, that was quite interesting to me that it was interesting that the, I think these films in particular, Pocahontas, Dances with Wolves, The Last of the Mohicans, historians rightly criticize them for, you know, they, they prop up a lot of negative stereotypes about indigenous people and they've had a very important impact on public thought. So in that way, in some sense of caused a lot of problems, but it was interesting to me that, that these really prominent indigenous activists appear in these films. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And like you were saying, yeah, Russell means huge, huge name. And just the fact in this film that the indigenous characters are played by indigenous actors, you know, it, it seems pretty commonplace today, but in the, in the nineties, that was, it, it was something. It, it wasn't nothing for this film being made in the 90s. That's true. Although I always think this is sort of an odd thing with both Dances with Wolves and this film where the protagonist is a white person that is co that comes to, you know, adopt indigenous culture. And so instead of centering an, a, an indigenous character, they've, they, you know, it's not like Daniel Day-Lewis in this film is doing some sort of like blackface thing but it is a white character instead of an indigenous character portraying indigenous culture yeah definitely and i've seen a couple things too that that mention you know the the creator of the 1992 movie wanted to kind of remove some of the justification of settler colonialism remove some of that myth of the dying race stuff and work towards it but many many articles and whatnot pointed out that he essentially took what was three main characters, two indigenous characters and the one white character who was adopted. They were all sort of the main character in the book. It became a white character with his two indigenous sidekicks, basically, mm. uh, in the movie. So, yeah, like you're saying, the focus is definitely on Daniel Day-Lewis throughout the film. Yeah, I think I also saw an interview with a director where he was saying that, you know, he wanted to make... Magua, a more sympathetic character in the film. Magua, you know, he tries to give him a backstory for why he wants to kill these people as the British had done something horrible to him in his past. And so, so he's trying to like humanize him more. I still don't think he did a great job. He's still really just sort of evil in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot of redeeming qualities with Magua there. No. So speaking of, of what we just talked about with Hawkeye being the sort of white adopted character. I'm curious, how often did this happen historically? Because there are a lot of popular portrayals of this, be it this film or Dances with Wolves or things like this. Was this, was this actually something that happened relatively commonly historically? From what I've seen, it was, and from what I've read, it was relatively common, maybe not huge, huge, everywhere happening all the time. But it was relatively common. Daniel Richter, historian, has explored captive taking and adoption in the Haudenosaunee context, the Six Nations called the Iroquois in the book, arguing that there was this tradition known as mourning wars. Mourning is in grief, not as in the beginning of the day, um, but mourning wars, 
where the na a nation would essentially replace people who had been killed generally in battle with captives. And it would be decided by the, the family members whether that captive would be adopted and essentially replace the person who'd been lost or be killed as sort of a cathartic activity. So that was fairly common, or happening at least quite a bit. Joaquin Rivaya Martinez has also argued from the Comanche context that at least in that context, captive taking was quite big. It was more to a means of attaining laborers. Hmm. And then there's also just captive taking was quite a focus then as you could ransom captives back for, for money. So captive taking was quite a, a common thing. Adoption was also not as common as captive taking, but also a fairly common thing at the time. Yeah. This also sort of thematically ties to the idea of captive narratives, which were a popular genre of story in early American history. And these captive narratives really propped up a lot of these ideas, particularly, as we mentioned earlier, these negative stereotypes of indigenous people as sort of brutal and quote, quote unquote, savage. These narratives particularly often revolved around how they would treat white women. And the idea was that it would it would make white audiences afraid because of the particular sort of like perceived sexual violence that they believed would happen in these cases. Can you elaborate on this genre of captive narratives? Can you tell us a little bit about, about that and how we sort of see that reflected in the film? It was a very, very popular genre. It was, it was huge. People ate it up, really. All kinds of captivity narratives, particularly back in the you know 1700s lot lot of this stuff and it kind of kind of bleeds over in today too with a lot of other more fictionalized versions now but there's also a number of of books that have come out recently a swift arrow spotted boy in the comanches books like that and the recent books the more fictionalized books focus generally on a male protagonist who gets captured and they're sort of adventure stories for young boys kind of that kind of thing back in the day like you said it, it was the focus was largely on white women who had been captured either adopted or, or held in these various nations. And they were stories about white women. They were stories that white women then told after captivity, after they were either ransomed back or escaped or, or things like that. These stories that the white women told, but were often written by men. And then when, when those men wrote those, they, you know, they changed things. They sensationalized hmm. these stories quite a bit. And many of them do, as you were mentioning, imply sexual violence and imply that these women were assaulted while they were held captive. In reality, that's seemingly not the case at all. There, there seemingly was very, very, very little sexual assault that was going on in these events, in these narratives. Significantly less than was going on in European culture, American European cultures kind of at the time. So that is, is kind of a big thing. It's actually mentioned even in the, in the book, in Last of the Mohicans, somebody mentioned something about saying the ill treatment of women, women are being ill-treated, kind of implying sexual violence in the book. And Hawkeye responds with anybody who thinks that doesn't know indigenous culture. They don't know what's actually going on there. That's not happening. So even in the 1820s, when Fen James Fenimore Cooper was writing this, that was a known thing. It was understood that there was very little, but the focus on a lot of those used that, that implication of violence to other, essentially, to draw a distinction between white societies like this, indigenous societies like this, they're different from us. So it's sort of drawing that us and them. A number of scholars, Linda Cauley, uh, Laurel Shire, a number of others, have focused on the ways that these captivity narratives were essentially used to draw distinctions between indigenous and white society to kind of draw a wedge there. Yeah, I think that one of the themes that's coming out of this, this conversation is 
popular entertainment genres have really shaped a lot of how the colonizer society perceives indigenous people more generally, right? But whether that be the captive narratives, whether that be novels like by James Fenimore Cooper, et cetera, I think that the media portrayals are, are really important to that perception, especially because a lot of people in maybe like 1820s America, depending on where you lived in the country, you probably didn't meet a lot of indigenous people. And so the the media is really how you learn about indigenous people, right? I mean, obviously there are regions of the country where you would meet indigenous people, but in some, it would not be that frequent. Oh, exactly. Yeah, society's kept fairly separate in, in the colonial era. And then, like you said, the only thing you're getting is through these popular culture that's portraying itself as accurate. So yeah, it, it sinks in, it gets ingrained. Let's change gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the, the portrayal of warfare and the military in... 18th century North America. So the film has a lot of depictions of the the political and military relationships between the British and the French, the various indigenous nations in the film. You know, we see alliances, we see battles, we see there's like a really elaborate surrender scene in the movie, which kind of stood out to me. That was quite interesting. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the depictions of these military relationships between these, these various groups. In terms of the the alliances and whatnot, from what I can tell, James Fenimore Cooper did a fairly good job lining up the alliances. There's a lot more in the book. He, he goes into a lot more detail with indigenous nations and who was allied with who and who was doing this and that. And and from what I know, he seems to have done a pretty good job of it. I mean, he, he was close to it. It's only 70 years away. So he had a, a decent enough sense of of what the alliances were. And I think he did a pretty good job with that. Mm-hmm. In terms of the violence... This was quite a violent era in terms of the frontier, particularly in the movie, when the frontier cabin is, uh, you don't actually see it get attacked, but you see him talking with the the people there and then they come back and it's burned out and everybody's dead. That kind of violence was quite prominent, particularly on the frontier. Settlers would build fences and assume that the indigenous wouldn't cross the fences. The indigenous would cross the fences as it wasn't really a thing, didn't delineate land as far as they were concerned. And the the settler would maybe shoot at people who had, who had crossed onto what they considered their land. The indigenous would attack settlements, settlers that were on land that they felt was theirs, that was encroaching. So there was a lot of violence going on on the frontier. And then alongside that, American newspapers really overemphasized, really sensationalized that violence. So it became really, really this, this sense of vicious, bloodthirsty kind of violence happening on the frontier. So there was a lot of it, and then it was amplified by the newspapers that were kind of sensationalizing to sell stories, also kind of doing what the captivity narratives did in a sense of othering, drawing, this is us, this is them, they're vicious and violent, we're not. So that was really a thing as well. I did really, uh, that the, the surrender scene at Fort William Henry there in the movie, I thought that was quite interesting too. And then the depictions of battles and warfare, I've always really liked the depictions of battles and warfare in in Last of the Mohicans. The one, one kind of little, I guess, sort of gripe I have with it when they're marching out of Fort William Henry there and they get attacked by Magua and his men, a number of the British fire their muskets back into the woods at whoever's shooting at them from the woods. That actually wouldn't have happened because they were allowed to march out with their arms, but they weren't allowed to have ammunition with them. So they had their okay. muskets. They had their muskets with bayonets, but they didn't have ammunition. They weren't able to fire back, which is why they got kind of so massacred in that attack because they didn't have an ability to fire back. They weren't really in ranks and whatnot. In terms of the actual warfare, though, I think it was a pretty good portrayal. Things like siege warfare, things like ambush-style warfare, 
those were both kind of the way that you fought in North America. Uh, and I think it did a pretty good job of, of portraying that. One thing that stands out to me in this theme of the film is, again, this there's some drawing of distinction between indigenous people and the, the European powers, where the European powers have all these sort of very like formulaic ways that they fight. They have these really elaborate ceremonies that signify you know, okay, now we're surrendering, now we're doing a parlay, all this sort of stuff. Whereas in the film, there's sort of an implication that the indigenous troops are like underhanded in some way or or fighting in an unfair way, in, in a dishonest way, which again is playing into these negative stereotypes about like, oh, Europeans ha have a, like an honorable way of fighting and the indigenous people are dishonorable and and so i think that that's another way that the film is playing into these stereotypes that are not accurate definitely definitely and there was absolutely like you're saying that sense of the indigenous are fighting in a in a cowardly way or in a in a not not right way and the europeans did adapt to that style of warfare relatively quickly come american revolution they they knew how to do all that stuff they knew ambush warfare they knew all of that and they were doing it but there remained that sense of sort of we're doing it out of necessity the the indigenous that's just the way that they fight and it's it's kind of underhanded uh like you said yeah definitely <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the portrayal of the british in this film i think this is very interesting you mentioned this briefly earlier so there's this whole sort of sub theme in the film that some of the settlers living on the frontier have enlisted in the British militia on the condition that if their homes are attacked, they can sort of leave wherever they're stationed to come back and defend their homes. Once they're in the fort, there's this whole plot line about the British won't actually let them go back. And there's sort of this thing where the commander is like, oh, I need more proof that your home is being attacked. I can't just take the word of Hawkeye. And this other British officer lies about seeing their homes attacked. And he, because he, he, he has a romantic interest in Cora, he makes some comment about like, oh, this won't matter once we're back in England, what we had to do here. So I think the portrayal of the British is quite interesting because, and, and I think it's quite, it's, it's always kind of interesting in American film because on the one hand, the filmmakers intend them to be more so the good guys, the quote unquote good guys in the film than, than Magua, than, than Montcalm, etc. On the other hand, the film is really filtered through the experience of the American Revolution, right? The film is set pretty shortly before those events start. And it's clear that you can see the colonists start saying stuff like, oh, if we can't go home and defend our homes, that's tyranny, right? And, and you know, th there's sort of th some rhetoric from the American Revolution that's being implanted into 1757 here and suggesting the British don't really respect the rights of their colonists. Were these tensions really brewing as early as 1757? My understanding of the history which could be wrong but by the way it's always been taught to me is that the sort of lead up to the revolution really begins in sort of the early to mid 1760s with some of the the british pieces of legislation tax legislation to actually sort of recoup the costs of this war but not really from the war itself but maybe i'm mistaken about that no that that's exactly my understanding as well yeah that idea that the British colonists were feeling that the British were tyrannical 
during the Seven Years' War, during the French and Indian War, yeah, I think is anachronistic. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've read in a couple places people arguing that at the end of that war, I believe 63, I think 1763, around that, 65, something like that, the, that the colonists had never felt more British. They were as proud as they'd ever been to be British. They were stoked to be British. They had just won this big war against their traditional enemy, the French. They were like, they were raw, raw for the British Empire at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, the British had spent a lot on the war. They had they had run themselves a little bit thin, and they had taken a pretty loose hand on the colonies up to that point, kind of let them do as they wanted. So now they started to enforce some of the taxation laws that they were just kind of letting go. They cracked down on some of the smuggling. They brought in kind of kind of a tighter hand. They just tried to rule with a with a firmer hand. And that is when the colonists started to be like, "You're you're tyrannical. The British are tyrants. We need to push back against this." So yeah, exactly. I don't I don't think that that sense did exist really amongst the colonists in 1757. Right. That makes sense. I always think of, there's this really interesting, it's a primary source that I've seen referenced in a, there's a documentary on the American Revolution and it's um, it's Benjamin Rush in the 1760s and he visits London or maybe it's not London, but wherever he sees like the king's throne and he's so excited to see the throne, right? He has all these comments he writes in this letter about like, I I don't know the exact quote, but it's something like all men's hopes aspire to this or something like that, right? And Benjamin Rush, of course, eventually goes on to be one of the signees of the Declaration of Independence. And so as late as the 1760s, he's still really into the British and the British monarchy. So I think think there's some, definitely some reading back in this film. Definitely. (laughs) Was that a common thing about, so I'm wondering how Americans in James Fenimore Cooper's time thought about their historical relationship to the British from before the revolution, right? Did they tend to read back these ideas about British tyranny into an earlier period? Or would they have thought more about, oh, we have all these sort of like historical relationships to them and and maybe thought a little bit more kindly of the British in that period? Yeah, I I did skim the book. I read it way back in my youth, way, way back. Um, And I skimmed it recently. From what I saw in the book, it wasn't particularly anti-British. There wasn't the the anti-British sentiment that's really in the film. I wasn't really getting through the book. Also, when he wrote it kind of in the 1820s, American Britain had sort of entered the era of good feelings where they were sort sort of friends again, weren't really at each other's throats quite the way that they had been up to that point. So I think particularly when James Fenimore Cooper wrote it, Things were getting better between Americans and the British, so there was a little less motivation for him to portray the British as as tyrannical and evil and, and all these things as things were getting a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing to the movie. The movie made in 1990s America, you know, for an American movie made in 1990s America, you can't really portray the British as, as great in the 1750s because... The American Revolution happens 20 years later, and, and they're the ultimate evil at that point. They're the main tyrants. They're, the, they're totally evil. So I definitely think that the film plays up that whole sense of the British are bad. The, even, even though they're on our side right now, they're still bad. They're tyrants. They're, they're treating us badly and, and all that. I, I didn't see as much of it in the book as I was kind of expecting after having watched the movie. But there's a ton in the movie. The movie is very sort of, the British are bad. We're, we're on their side now. The British are bad. 
In terms of the indigenous in the book, the, the nations that do end up generally allying with the British, even in the American Revolution, are portrayed pretty negatively. The Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations, are sort of the good guys. They're the guys that are allied with the British, who are sort of our good guys in the book. But George Fenim- or, uh, James Fenimore Cooper, you know, attacks them quite a bit. He talks about inherent, you know, this, that, how they're bad for these reasons. And he does very much the same thing about the Huron. And then he portrays the Lenape fairly well. And the Lenape didn't necessarily ally with the Americans in the American Revolution, but they were much more supportive than, again, the, the Haudenosaunee sort of split into sort of a civil war over the American Revolution. But many groups continued with the British. The Wyandotte remained with the British. So it was in the indigenous context, he's a little bit more, you can see the American Revolution bleeding back in a little bit more, I think, than his portrayal of the British and, and the Americans. But in the film, very much, the British are not portrayed very well. It's interesting that I think so much of American film is filtered through, or at least portrayals of the British is filtered through the experience of the American Revolution, even in films that are not really about the American Revolution. You even think of films that are not even about history, right? Like I think of Star Wars is a kind of a funny example where it was a decision that the quote unquote imperial accent would be the British accent because it, you know, it would connote the British empire and sort of, so I th- I think that that's something that's really interesting. That is a, uh, is such a, a lasting historical memory for Americans that it sort of plays such a big role in film. Definitely that the star Wars one is really interesting too. How, yeah, the Imperial army is in sort of Nazi looking uniforms with a British accent, mm-hmm. the kind of the traditional enemies. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting thing with American film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about this movie that we haven't covered yet? Uh, not especially. I, I think we covered a lot of the main the main stuff. Yeah, we've definitely definitely covered a lot of ground. Great theme song, I'll say. Oh, of... I love it. <laughs> love it. And like, yeah, no, I, I remember way back in the day going to YouTube and I guess technically illegally, but downloading it <laughs> off of YouTube and, and listening to it because it's just such a great song. It like... Yeah. Oh, man. Huge, huge fan of the theme song. It's a good theme song, although I was like, uh, they play it a lot during they the movie. They do. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, you, uh, can, you can have a second song. <laughs> yeah, it does. It comes up at every every key moment in the film. It That's the song that's playing. Uh, I loved the, the visualness of the film, too. Just the like the big wide panorama scenes that they have in so many of the things. And then the explosions. It's so cool to watch the explosions and the cannon fire and be like, that's real. Like they actually blew stuff up to to film this. Oh, really? I think I'm I'm pretty sure it's it's just pyrotechnics. I think you're right. I think I was reading that they actually essentially built a fort for the movie and then you know blasted it to film the those scenes. Yeah, oh, and it's when they surrender. It's it's in it's in dire straits. The the fort back there. You can see it's smoking and pieces missing and whatnot. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely like a it's it's a movie on an epic scale, which is interesting to me. Like like the battle scenes are quite exciting, I guess, which I think contrasts with how a lot of people think about warfare in the 18th century. A lot of people think about it as guys stand in a line and shoot guns and then the other guys are who are standing in a line shoot guns and that's kind of not very interesting. This film, I mean, not that war should be exciting in the sense that like it shouldn't be glorified but the 
the battle scenes are quite intense, I guess is more so what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And that's that is another thing that I really quite liked about the film that for for a lot of people coming into to US history or, or colonial era history classes, yeah, there's that sense of the Europeans didn't know how to fight in the North American context. They lined up and they just shot each other across distance and you know, that was that. They they wore red in the woods because they didn't realize about camouflage and stuff like that. So it it's it's nice to see see it portrayed i think a little bit more accurately than at least some of the portrayals and certainly than the sense that most people have about what warfare was like at the time yeah i think it's also interesting that the movie is a little bit a portrayal of canadian history as well right in that we do get obviously montcalm who i think is even referred to as you know he's come down from the canadas to fight these battles in upstate new york obviously in this period Canada and New York were just different parts of the British Empire. They weren't really like the United States and Canada in the way that they are today. And so a lot of this this history has some so a lot of like ties to what is going on in Canada as well. And we sort of like see Canadian history like in the background a little bit. Definitely. Even even flipping through the book there, there was a lot of mentions of the Canadas, a lot of mentions of Canadians and sort of like the dastardly Canadians and this and that. So I, I made a oh, couple really? of notes that were like, this is perfect. I'm putting this in my thesis, definitely. <laughs> and there's definitely a few of those on Montcalm too. James Fenimore Cooper was not a fan of Montcalm. He mm. at the start of one of his chapters, he has like a page, a couple pages dedicated to basically ripping on the guy being like the future is going to remember him basically as this guy who fought for his homeland died on the plains of abraham this this kind of noble figure uh when in reality the the massacre at fort william henry was if not his direct idea something that he just tacitly let happen was fine with it um and was this horrible horrible thing he, he dedicated pages to basically attacking montcalm's character and and the historical remembrance of him and that kind of came out of left field for me because it was like it's just this book, this sort of adventure book with a lot of like, it's an adventure story, but so much philosophy, so much talking about like this, that, and like a lot of that. But it's that kind of book. And then he just kind of takes this aside at the beginning of this chapter to do this in the first person discussing with you how Montcalm was evil. <laughs> it came out of nowhere. It was kind of weird. That's funny. Yeah, I feel like this is a thing in old novels that Sometimes the author has a really specific bone to pick about something from history that you'll just be reading the novel and then out of nowhere, they'll be like, you know who I don't like? Alexander Hamilton or whatever, right? And then we just sort of a, a section on that, just really griping about something. That's funny. And, and you know, Montcalm does not look that great in this movie. He looks dishonest, duplicitous. He kind of makes this deal with Magua to essentially like, well, I can't attack them when they surrender but i won't you know he doesn't say it in this way but he's like but i won't stop you from doing it kind of so yeah yeah kind of comes through in this cool well thanks so much for talking to me about this movie this has been this has been really interesting uh, i've learned lots of stuff i think listeners will too do you have any projects you'd like to share with the listeners or any anything coming up that you want to mention? Just more or less the dissertation. Hopefully, hopefully that'll be done in the next little bit here. Look forward at Western's library's dissertation repository sometime soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's 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 about it. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to see the see the dissertation. I'm really interested in the the topic about like portrayals of in Canada of of uh, or portrayals of Canada in US media so so that should be should be very interesting from another another media historian 
Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Jonathan for chatting with me. If you'd like to learn more about the Seven Years' War or mass media representations of Indigenous people, check the description for some reading recommendations. I've also collected some artwork from various adaptations of The Last of the Mohicans around the world and put it up on the show's Instagram and Facebook pages, so definitely check that out. There are some really interesting ones, like a stamp issued by the Soviet Union in 1989. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you tell a friend to give it a listen. For a podcast of this size, personal recommendations make a big difference for growing the audience. If you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcast page, that's also a big help. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave me a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics, and if you're a historian who's interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to message me. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. <laughs> <laughs>